0: This is Other Voices. We're listening to varied views from local people who might otherwise not be heard. I'm Melissa Hale Spencer, editor of the Altamont Enterprise, which focuses on Albany County, New York. I'm talking to Eric Reimer, a pastor who tweets. He's the new pastor at St. John's Evangelical Lutheran Church in Altamont. The Word of God, Reimer says needs to be proclaimed wherever people are. The Lutheran movement itself exists largely because of changes in the way people communicate. Reimer has been a minister for 12 years, and the church in Altamont is his third call. He came here with his family from a much larger church of the same name located in a Philadelphia suburb. Reimer had thought bigger was better when he took that post in 2013, but came to realize he prefers a smaller community. So you came from another St. John's, right? Yes, Pennsylvania. I did. I was, um, <laughs> so describe that St. John's to I us. I was
1: about 10 miles outside of Philadelphia, and you know, so it was... A much larger area in the first ring suburbs of a major city. And it was a much larger congregation and a much faster pace. And I went into that parish thinking, you know, bigger is better and all of those foolish things and realized that that wasn't for me and my gifts. And I was much better suited to a smaller parish and a a smaller town and was actively looking for that. Mm.
0: Well, tell us why, why smaller is better.
1: Well, that's where I, that's um, familiar to me. I grew up in a small town in Pennsylvania where it was not uncommon to hear Pennsylvania Dutch spoken, which is a dialect of German. And they were, it was a a small town, Grace Lutheran Church in Mukunji, Pennsylvania, and um, it. just that was home and so I was looking for a parish that was more like that and after earlier in my career thinking oh of course a bigger parish with more people in the pews and things like that obviously is better when I'm I now think a parish that's more in line with what you as a pastor and that is just meets your gifts is a a better fit for you and so that's
0: Interesting. Exciting. So, so are you a, German in origin yourself? Is that largely yes? Yeah, okay. Yeah. And how does it work just in terms of the church structure? Because I know not the most recent pastor at your church, but the one before that, Keen Hilton, he was there for his lifetime. Yes. I mean, are you able to stay as long as you want to stay, or does the church have rules on like
1: typically? Our system is one where you are called in a mutual agreement between pastor and congregation. And so it is typically the pastor is called and stays until the the pastor decides to retire or resign. And um, I guess there are other situations where it doesn't always work out like that, but that's the the typical model. But for whatever reason, pastors tend to stay about four, seven years, sometimes much longer, but um, other times not, and... So do just, you have
0: any predictions on how long you'll be here?
1: Oh my goodness, I was—I didn't want the conversation to go this direction because <laughs> okay. I didn't want to answer that question. Well, but. don't
0: don't feel on the <laughs> spot. But it must be hard with a young family, right? I—I yeah. I happened to accidentally talk to yep. Josiah, your I son. Have, and, I have two
1: children, and yeah. it, it's very common in the the of pastors. In my denomination, I remember hearing advice of how to talk to your kids about when it's time to move and and change calls. And even my best friend growing up was my pastor's son, and I met him in fifth grade. And I was really excited because until that point, I was typically the only male in my Sunday school class. So I informed him. (laughs) we're going to be friends. And to this day, he still is, whether he likes it or not. (laughs) Well, I've
0: always heard the term military brats, because everyone knows if you're Mm -hmm. in a military family, you move, but I never had heard the parallel with pastor's brats. Yeah,
1: sometimes. (laughs) But but every church system is different, and that's just how our system works.
0: Okay. Well, thank you for sharing that and how you came here. And um, just tell us a little about or maybe just an idea, what, what does a pastor do? Maybe you could tell us, like, is there a typical week or a typical no. day? Or how, how does life unfold when you've got so many different—it's not like most of us, you know, go to work at 9, come home at 5. I'm assuming you're kind of on call all the time, but there's such a variety of different things. Just kind you, of you describe are that life.
1: There's not really a typical week, although there are routine tasks, Um, I was just talking to a parent at the bus stop this morning, and I, without thinking about it, described my job as saying, a large part of what I do is creative, and because there's a lot of writing. Every every week you are writing a sermon, you're writing newsletter articles, you're coming up with Bible studies, and people, the only person that wants to sit through a repeated Bible study is less than the, the people participating, is the pastor that's teaching it. So you're always coming up with new things. So that's a, a big part of it. But there's also the relationship part of it where you're providing spiritual care for people. And that's done both in the church building, but also in their homes and uh, in hospitals. And of course, that's all been greatly complicated by COVID.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: and so that's made it more difficult. There's people that I have been able to meet in person as the new pastor. and There's other folks that they attend worship faithfully on Zoom and I've We've waved over the screen and like, spoken through email and things like that, but it's so not the same So you have congregants
0: as you haven't even met, you haven't even... Not t-
1: face-to-face y- yeah. enough, but I have other folks that have been willing to bring me into their home and mm-hmm. to meet with me. That everybody has different levels of comfort, and yeah. so we're, we're figuring that out as we go. It's...
0: Yeah, and when I talked to Kirby Wilson, she wrote a letter to the editor about you that'll be in print this week. She said one of the things that she's excited about, well two things she mentioned, and we can touch on both of them, but the part that fits in here is um she said you do couples counseling. Is that
1: hmm, I wouldn't call it counseling. Okay, I, maybe that's the wrong word. I'm not a licensed counselor or anything like that and I wouldn't
0: she mentioned some kind of certification like or yes. something that she thought was a big plus. That, I um, do.
1: Um, I work with a prepare, enrich. I call it It's a relationship education system. And it was developed by a Lutheran pastor to work with couples that are poor, preparing for marriage, work with couples that are conflicted, um, work with couples that are preparing for adoption, um, as well as also an adoption readiness portion of it. But it largely relates to helping couples in the premarital process, not planning colors or (laughs) meals or anything like that, but talking about the issues in a relationship and focusing on areas where they have strength and areas where they can grow and giving them actual actionable ways to work on that and build and and grow their relationship. And it's also designed to find the things they haven't talked about yet and make sure they talk about them. I work with couples doing that as they prepare to get married, and I'm also one who trains facilitators to do that process. And so I can also train other pastors and things like that to oh,
0: that's become a
1: and rich facilitator.
0: Because relationships are so important, and I think most of us just take them for granted. You don't think of something that you have to work on.
1: Constantly, (laughs) yes.
0: I assume that's true with a relationship with God as well. Oh, yes. So so tell me a little about the other thing Kirby Wilson mentioned, which she said you're an outdoors person. And I looked up, I see you tweet and you have a picture of yourself. um, You know, you're fishing, I think. It's your back. Oh, yes. So tell, tell us about the outdoors and does that at all intersect with your role as pastor or with your religious beliefs?
1: Absolutely. Um, In fact, it's formational. A big part of me being a Christian and the place where I really actively discerned my call to ministry was by working at a Lutheran summer camp and spending seven years working in outdoor ministry, where I did things like lead hiking and canoeing trips, teach kids how to fish or well, I didn't really teach kids how to swim, but I taught kids how to hike and backpack. And I went, went from being a counselor in training to being a unit coordinator and being in charge of any time campers left the, the camp property to do hiking trips on the Appalachian Trail or we would, a camp in Pennsylvania would send um, once a summer a trip to the Adirondacks.
0: Ah, um, the Adirondacks and now they they're were,
1: in striking distance
0: for yes, you. Have you that, been there since you've moved here? Yes
1: I have. And that was one of the selling points of the upper Hudson Valley was the the proximity of some of my favorite wilderness in the world.
0: Yeah, it's one of mine too. I I'm a forty sixer. <laughs> so what how does that You said you discerned your calling at this Lutheran summer camp. Just kind of describe that process for us. How did that happen?
1: So I was in college. I mean, I started working there as high school was ending, and then every summer in between semesters at school. And I floundered around figuring out what did I want to do. I had a lot of different majors in the beginning of college. I actually was not successful at my first university and had to change schools. Um, I I learned a lot failing out of college, quite honestly. But in figuring all of that out, the one thing that I constantly wanted to do was go back to the summer camp and work there that summer. And in talking to the chaplains that were there those weeks and also having grown up in the church and having a good relationship with several pastors, I started to... I think come to grips with something that I was always in the back of my mind, that working in the church and being there for others and continuing to build these relationships that were always there in my life um, was what I was called to do. And I, I always joked, you, couldn't always, you can't make life work on a camp counselor's salary for long after college, so you have to do something similar, and being a pastor was pretty close. But.
0: Really? How, how, how is that close?
1: Well, you lead worship, you form relationships with people, but one of the big differences is at the end of the summer, everybody goes home, but there's no end of the summer. It's a constant lifelong cycle of living and sharing the ups and downs of life, the joys and the sorrows, the, the triumphs and the tragedies of, with a group of people that are trying to figure out how to move forward in their lives and make sense of all of that. It's, uh, Fascinating. I've come to so it had I've come less to, see to do it as a with the natural
0: gift. world and these relationships that you had at camp and feeling like you were helping the people at camp through whatever. Absolutely.
1: But the, mm. the outdoor setting made that even more apparent because you're obviously going to rely on each other when you're on a 10-day backpacking trip. You know, you have to work together. And it, may, and it also created those really intense bonding experiences. So some of my closest friends to this day are people that I worked with.
0: Wow, that's really a nice, nice experience to have and to share. So I was hoping we could talk a little about Thanksgiving because it's we're on the cusp. (laughs) And I don't know, is it something um, that you have thoughts on as a pastor, um, as a Lutheran? how we approach this season. And this is how I met your son. I called ahead today to let you know that I wanted to talk about something I just came across, which I think you're much more familiar with, I'm sure, than I am, which is um, the repudiation of the doctrine of discovery that the Lutherans adopted in 2016. Yes. So, just launch into whatever you want to say about Thanksgiving and we'll go from there.
1: So yeah, Thanksgiving is coming up this week and giving thanks for all the blessings in life is obviously something we do year round. And so having one day for that set aside is not something we're opposed to, but it's also not an official holiday on our church calendar or anything like that. It is a a civil holiday mm-hmm. at St. John's. We're actually transitioning from the end of the season of Pentecost into the beginning of Advent right now, and Thanksgiving always falls at that time. But we'll be changing our decorations on Sunday. The what you have there, I believe, from looking at the cover of it across the table, it's what was just issued a couple months ago. That's our the ELCA's declaration to um, Native and Indigenous people, and that was done as a follow up to the 2016 repudiation. And so I guess to explain what you have there to back up, the the ELCA, the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, is one of several Lutheran denominations in the United States. Um, There's about maybe four million people that are members of that, that particular branch of Lutheranism all over the U.S. And we exist... As individual congregations, like I'm the pastor of St. John's Lutheran Church in Altamont. That's the individual congregation. But St. John's in Altamont is a member of the upstate New York Synod of the ELCA. Um, There's also a metro New York Synod. My previous parish was in the southeastern Pennsylvania Synod. You can see we have very creative titles for things. Um, But (laughs) there are 65 synods all over the country. They all have their own bishop, but they're then also organized under the presiding bishop and the churchwide office, which is in Chicago. And the highest legislative body of the ELCA meets every three years, where representatives elected from all 65 synods meet. And I believe in 2019, it was in Milwaukee, was the most recent one. Um, they meet, they vote, and at the 2016 assembly, they passed the repudiation of the Doctrine of Discovery, which officially repudiates a doctrine that was developed by Pope Alexander VI in 1493, opening up any land that wasn't occupied by Christian people to be discovered and seized by, in this case, um, the Kingdom of Spain, because it was giving license to Spain to claim all this new land they discovered the year before in 1492. Um, But that became the foundation of every Roman Catholic or Protestant all Christian conquest of land in North and South America. And what that repudiation and what this declaration that was issued um, just last month by the ELCA, it admits our participation in that, that while we are, did not issue the original idea, we benefited from it. We are a, con- a denomination made up largely of European um, immigrants of European descent. We, Our churches are built on land that were seized from Native American peoples and we established our communities and built our church structures there and we benefited from it. And it is also calling us as a denomination to not continue to participate and perpetuate um, these um, abuses of people. So from in the past Christian ministry to... Native peoples might have been to teach them to live our way and to um, attack and diminish their culture, and now Lutheran ministries to um, Native folks would work to build up and preserve their language and culture and um, affirm the full humanity of all people.
0: Yeah, I think it's a really courageous and wonderful thing. I um, last night stayed up late, reading, as I mentioned to you, this David Silverman book, This Land is Their Land, and I felt guilty, because on the pages of our paper, we have frequently run pictures of these adorable school children in their, you know, paper pilgrim hats, and the Indians, which aren't identified as Wampanoag and certainly don't look like Wampanoag because they have Western-style headdresses, and it's this part of this myth that um, somehow welcomed the white conquerors as opposed to seeing the destruction that was there. And the wording of this document from your... um, E.L.C.A. I just found really moving. It quotes Martin Luther speaking of how by faith Christians are Lord of all, subject to none, but immediately qualifying that by saying that Christians are servant of all, subject to all, and so. It just lays out this very different role that has been enshrined in our law and um, caused so much destruction.
1: Even 500 years ago, when Martin Luther was preaching and teaching, he used that quote that you laid out there to teach that it is not the proper role of the church to help give authority to government. It's also not the proper role of the church to oppose government, but we shouldn't use our religious authority given to us by God to justify the actions of the government. And the Doctrine of Discovery did just that. It said, because these people are not Christian, their current occupation of the land doesn't count as ownership. You can take it. It was giving civil authority with religious justification and that is a misuse of our authority.
0: Yeah, it's been upheld that very doctrine by <laughs> our own Supreme Court, <laughs> and again, repeatedly. So, yeah. um, what are your thoughts, do you have any thoughts on what individuals, Christian or not, can do to right this wrong? I mean, recognizing it is a huge step,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, but what's the next step?
1: Um, that is something I think we are all working out as a society, and we're still not even all in agreement on is it a problem? You know some of our sports teams are still even name things that are honestly racial slurs, and so we're trying to figure all of that out. If in, and in the documents that are there by the ELCA, they're still claiming that's in process. Um, in 2016, there was a call to develop resources and they're now released for congregations to start doing land acknowledgements. And at the 2019 ELCA assembly in Milwaukee it was the first time our presiding bishop acknowledged the land that, we, that the meeting was taking place on, not belonging to them but belonging to an indigenous tribe that was there first. And so those resources are there now for every congregation to research what land are they on and can they acknowledge that? Um, But we are still working out, I think, even as a denomination, what's next? What is meaningful for that? And the way that we're doing that is by allowing the native leaders within our church to lead us. So the, there is a, there's been a desk established at the churchwide office in Chicago that there are native leaders within the ELCA that are leading us and what can we do next that will be meaningful. Um, And we're following them and they are going to propose next steps at the 2022 um, churchwide assembly for where we can go next.
0: It's a hard one because we can't turn back the clock. I mean, Mm -hmm. we can't. Return to Europe or wherever we came from, our ancestors. Yeah. It, it's what do we do now that we've, we're here? It's hard. Um, so you mentioned turning the page to Christmas. That your church is changing its decorations this week. You're going from the Pentecostal to the Advent mm-hmm. season. Just kind of describe just as you said, not the decorations. It's it's not the wedding you're counseling people on, the colors, and the, you know, it's the marriage. The same thing here. Just, if you could kind of take us on a spiritual walk through Mm. what these different uh, terms and seasons mean.
1: Sunday, November 28th will be the first Sunday in Advent, which is really the first day of the new year in our church calendar. And it's not really a New Year's celebration, it's the beginning of a four-week season of hopeful preparation for what we know is already coming and what has already happened, and that is the birth of Christ. Um, And it's uh, four weeks of preparation for the 12-day season of Christmas. And so some denominations and some Congregations might have a special set of Advent decorations and then bring out Christmas decorations just for that 12-day season. Others decorate for Christmas early. There's debate within the church of can you sing Christmas carols during the four-week season of Advent when you're supposed to be preparing for Christmas. And I don't know. I think yeah, Christmas carols are fun, and I think we could sing one in the middle of July if we wanted to because the grace of Jesus Christ is there for all of us, even if we want to sing Christmas carols in July. Well, I don't know I don't know if we should go Christmas caroling in July. I don't think the neighbors would appreciate that, but, uh, so, but we're preparing for that. But it's Advent and Christmas is the beginning of six months of the year where we, in our worship services, follow the life of Jesus from birth at Christmas. We learn about his life through the season of Epiphany, and we enter the season of Lent, which is six weeks of preparation, and both of ourselves and of our church for the season of Easter, which is a seven week long season where we celebrate the resurrection. And then we move into the season of Pentecost, which is the other six months of the year where we focus on the work of the church in the world.
0: Many of us have reduced it not to whole seasons, but to single days, Mm -hmm. you know. There's Christmas, there's Easter. So what does it do as you lead your congregation through these different seasons in terms of maybe your sermons or your Bible studies? When you're in the Pentecostal phase, you're focusing on the world. Like, how how does it change what... What happens within your own
1: church? We change literally the colors on the altar depending on the season. Mm -hmm. And they all have different... So for Advent, it's blue, and for Christmas, it will be white. The focus of the text changes. So seasons like Epiphany and Pentecost, where it's green, there'll be more... The readings will be selected from where Jesus is teaching, his parables, where he's instructing his disciples. But then in Lent and the season of Christmas it's more stories of what happened in Jesus's life right now in Advent as we're preparing you're actually going to be hearing a lot about John the Baptist um, and him preparing which is somewhat interesting because that leads to Jesus being baptized which probably didn't happen right around in December because it was outside
0: Yeah. Um, so one of the things I found online, and if I had gotten you instead of Josiah, I would have told you because I don't want to you know, surprise you with this, but I just love this. It's something you, you had, and I don't know if it was a sermon or if it was just something you posted, because some of your posts I found really amusing. I see, like, you're a Phillies and Eagles fan. And you, Guilty. Yeah, you had some of these things that were just... Uh, you know, like you don't think of a minister <laughs> necessarily posting on. But then you also had um, tweets. I mean, one that I really loved. this was like back in 2009, a leading um, Saudi cleric has called on Muslims not to pray for the destruction of unbelievers. And you wrote in capital letters, power to the peaceful. Mm-hmm. I mean, how? what does it... Do people... How do tweets figure in... I think most of us think of church teaching as coming through either text mm-hmm. or sermons. Yeah. I mean, how, how do tweets fit into that?
1: Like, I think the word of God can be communicated. and needs to be proclaimed wherever people are. the The Lutheran movement itself exists largely because of changes in the way people communicate. Martin Luther's ideas had been expressed before by other theologians, but he didn't have the, there wasn't the ability to print them and distribute them quickly to get them out before they could be repressed. And then once his ideas were out there, he took advantage of things like using woodcuts to make interesting illustrations to accompany his catechisms, his Christian teachings, and instructions to hold people's attention. And he was also a big advocate of the scriptures themselves should be translated into a language people can understand if it's read to them or if they can read it for themselves. And they shouldn't be just in Latin. And so the fact that people are communicating, whether it's on Twitter or Facebook or the internet, then the the church should be there as well because that's where God's people are. And so whenever there are ways to advocate for peace or to care for one another or to love our neighbor, that the church should show up and proclaim that. And so there's lots of active people So I love this idea because
0: we're, of course, in a business where how people are hearing and learning things is rapidly changing. And so what you're saying is Martin Luther's revolution itself was partly brought about, not just by the ideas, but because those ideas were suddenly printable for masses and yes. in languages they could understand yep. and therefore cause this mm-hmm. change yeah. from the, wow, that's so what I was leaving up to was, and I don't know if this was a sermon or just a post um, it was at the other St. John's where you were and I think it's pretty recent although I don't have a date on it um, you start out talking about how you have a lot of old books <laughs> and you like looking through your old books and then you um, you get into one of them, which is this sermon that Luther himself gave, and you quote it. It's short, and it's the idea of the Christmas story, which everyone knows, and similar to those little pilgrim pictures that I run, we always run these pictures. (laughs) They do the live nativity at the other church in Altamont every year, and we all think we know what the story is because we've seen this mythologized version of it for so long. But what Luther does here is he tells the people listening to him, if only I had been there, how quick I would have been to help the baby. Because we all recognize the importance of who the baby was. Mm -hmm. But his point is, no, you wouldn't have. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Because they were considered scum. They were in a barn. And isn't this cute scene we think of (laughs) with the, the little cows that we portray, and um, so you end by saying, um, this doesn't, Luther makes the Christian mission clear. We are to serve Christ by serving our neighbor. This doesn't mean helping the neighbors we like or the ones who are like us, but our neighbors huddling for warmth in a doorway, our neighbors living in their cars, our neighbors trying to keep their needs out of sight. So just kind of tell us a little about how you came up with this.
1: Oh, so that's one of Luther's famous Christmas Eve sermons where he was kind of toying with the congregation Of course you'd say, if I were in Bethlehem that night, I would have helped the Christ child. I would have helped Joseph and Mary. And he said, of course you would, because you know the whole story. But be honest. If you were there at that time, only knowing what the people knew then, you would have ignored them just the same. Because you say you would serve Christ. Christ is in your neighbor. Serve Christ there. And so... I pulled from that the reality and this that was what I I felt my anxiety level go down once I realized exactly what writing you had found and were quoting <laughs> oh, okay. from as I could speak to it. I knew what you were saying. That was written for a newsletter at a parish that had a growing food pantry ministry and as much of the resources they put in to help meet the need and they, they met those needs and people were like, wow, this is amazing. And more people came to get help and they kept helping. And as it was growing and building and we were doing all of that holy work to, to do that, we were having people finding that folks were literally huddled in the doorway of the church building. That there were people living in their cars and we were figuring out, well, if you are housed, you need a different kind of food support than if you are living in your car, because, well, if you have a stove, you can have a lot more options from the food pantry than if you don't. And we were working with ways to help care for the whole person, because if you're not housed, you have definitely have more issues than just needing the food pantry. And those examples were already perhaps known to the congregation. Um, and so I was recalling those as to bring, this is why we're doing this work.
0: And so did that work then expand to help with housing kinds of projects or
1: did it go that particular congregation, no, but it caused us to continue to expand and be able to provide folks with other resources and to reach out to other congregations that were. And that congregation, St. John's in Halfboro, Pennsylvania, had a food pantry ministry that grew from about 40 clients to over about 200 clients. Um about five, ten years later. Wow. And so, and then they partnered with a lot of, like, they didn't offer clothing support for families, but they found another congregation that did, so we could, part. we ended up partnering with lots of other congregations and connecting into a network of other congregations that provided other services or also did food pantry ministries so we could share food, make sure we had even less waste and things like that. And
0: so... We've gone quickly through our time. Do you have closing thoughts either on what your hopes are for Altamont and what you're doing here, or just anything you want to leave our listeners with?
1: I would say as we come into the week of Thanksgiving, it's always appropriate to give thanks. And whether you're a Christian or not, I think we can all benefit from The act of actively giving thanks and looking for things to be thankful for. And so I'll challenge everybody listening to spend the week looking for different reasons to be thankful and to find ways to find different reasons to be gratitude, to have gratitude. And I would then challenge you to find new ways to express that gratitude to others and help build relationships and spread love.